Job chapter 1, verses 1 to 12. In the land of Uz, there lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. He had seven sons and three daughters, and he owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 donkeys, and had a large number of servants. He was the greatest man among all the people of the East. His sons used to hold feasts in their homes on their birthdays, and they would invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. When a period of feasting had run its course, Job would make arrangements for them to be purified. Early in the morning, he would sacrifice a burnt offering for each of them, thinking, perhaps my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. This was Job's regular custom. One day, the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. The Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord, from roaming throughout the earth, going to and fro on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Does Job fear God for nothing? Satan replied. Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You have blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. But now stretch out your hand and strike everything he has and he will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, very well then, everything he has is in your power, but on the man himself do not lay a finger. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. So suffering, suffering is all around us, isn't it? Just this summer, uh, we've witnessed horrendous acts of terrorism in our land, causing death and grief and injury and trauma to people's lives. We've seen the devastating effects of nature with floods and landslides and hurricanes uh, across the world. We continue to see different parts of the world torn apart uh, by war, leaving the vulnerable subject to disease and suffering. And it's often the vulnerable, isn't it, that uh, suffer the worst after effects of war. And then there are our own lives too. We struggle with mental health issues, illness, relationship breakdowns, death, grief, pain. It's not a pretty picture, is it? Suffering and evil are all around us. 
And therefore, they are also practical problems for all of us. The pain, the cruelty, the violence, the grief, the death of this world affects us all at some time or other, whether it be emotionally or spiritually or physically or all three altogether. But maybe for Christians, the presence of pain and suffering is a bigger problem for us to actually get our heads around. And that's because of the paradox that we're exploring this morning. We believe in a God who is actively inactive. A massive paradox. We believe in a God who is inactively active. On the one hand, we believe God to be loving and compassionate, omnipresent, all-powerful, in control, and involved in the whole universe. And yet, when we're experiencing or seeing suffering, we ask, where is God when we need him? Why hasn't he intervened? How can God be so inactively active? Or simply put by Philip Yancey, the author, where is God when it hurts. Where is God when it hurts? Through the Bible, we come across uh, these three biblical truths time and again. We come across the utter sovereignty of God, God over all. We come across the utter goodness of God, but also the utter evilness of evil and suffering. And the presence of evil is very much part of the biblical story. We can't get away from it. But sometimes it can feel that the pain and the evil and the suffering of this world is everywhere. And the God who is good and the God who is sovereign is absent. If God is supposed to be like this in control and sovereign, then how can life be like this, so jam-packed full of evil and suffering? And we get to the point, don't we, in our lives where we shout at God and we say, do something. God, do something. What is going on? We ask this big question, why? Why? I remember after the tsunami of Boxing Day 2004, uh, when 250,000 people were wiped out in a few hours. Everywhere, people were asking this question, why? Why would this happen? Why would God allow this to happen? Or even, why has God caused this to happen? And in those moments, people are always trying to come up with answers, answers why God would allow this to happen. And some really helpful people uh, stepped in uh, with responses about the judgment of God on those people who were killed like uh, one church in America who on their website suggested that it was a matter of thanksgiving that 1,900 uh, Swedish people had been killed uh, as a way of God judging uh, the nation of Sweden for its more liberal culture and laws. In the face of suffering, we so often ask, why? Why has this been allowed to happen? People want answers. Why is God so passive? Why doesn't he intervene? Why doesn't he solve the problem? And the whole biblical book of Job is the account of one innocent man's struggle with immense suffering. And yet the interesting thing about the book of Job is that we don't find in it any answers. We don't find the answer to the question, why? And I think that's 
probably because sometimes there just are no answers. The story of Job is all about suffering of which there is no explanation. And even though Job's story doesn't give us answers in the face of seemingly purposeless suffering, it does show us more of what God is like. And also, perhaps most profoundly, it helps us to work out how to be people of faith in the face of suffering. So we're going to have a look at Job's suffering. Uh, Job is 42 chapters long, uh, so we're not going to do the whole book, but we are going to whiz through it briefly. And we're going to look at how Job's responds in the face of the suffering that he encounters. Job is your archetypal, blameless, innocent person facing incessant, unbearable pain and, and loss the child tortured and killed in the concentration camp, the family swept away in the tsunami, the parents spending day after day, night after night, by the bed of their small child being treated for leukemia, the family mourning the loss of their son mowed down by a fanatical terrorist. Here is Job, a man of integrity. We read that he is blameless and upright, and he has wealth and prosperity. We heard about that in our reading. And he is a man who we heard fears God and shuns evil. With all this wealth and with seven sons and three daughters, he'd be seen at the time as someone who had received God's blessing. He would be seen as somebody who had it all in the eyes of the world and in the eyes of religion as well. And yet unbeknown to him, in the heavenly realm, something else is going on. A heavenly being completely intent on the downfall of godly and righteous people enters into a, a, a banterous uh, wager with the Lord. Satan taunts the Lord and he says, you know, if, if everything is taken away from Job, if he faces suffering and pain, even he, a righteous man like Job, will end up cursing God. But God knows Job. He has a relationship with Job. God, Job and God, you know, they walk through life together. And it's this relationship that Job has with God and the relationship that perhaps we have with God that gives us the strength that will sustain us through times even of pain and suffering. Job's relationship with God is central then to how he responds when he faces suffering. And so God allows Job to suffer. But even so, remember that there is no equality between Satan and God. God always remains more powerful. He remains in control. It is he who has allowed Job's suffering. And yet he says to Satan in verse 12 of chapter 1, everything is in your hands, but on the man himself do not lay a finger. There are limits, God says. We find that the God who is seemingly actively inactive is actually in control. And sometimes we need to remember that too, don't we? Even when it can seem like evil and pain and suffering have the upper hand, God is always sovereign. God has the ultimate control. 
And so then Job's suffering begins. We find out that his sons and daughters are killed in an accident. His property is stolen, all his animals that he has, and then his servants are murdered. But notice what Job's response is. He doesn't go around looking for somebody to blame. He doesn't question what on earth he's done uh, to have this uh, pain and suffering upon him. He worships God. In his grief, we read, he shaves his head, he tears his robe, and he falls on the ground in worship. And he says these words, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. His first response is to worship, to say, This is the God whom I believe and I follow. But his suffering continues. He's now afflicted in himself. He he has painful sores that are so irritating. We read that he rubs them with pottery to try and relieve the incredible itching. He's covered with scabs and parasites. He's alienated from his community. The community that he used to lead, he's scorned and he's taunted and he's rejected. But still, Job remains faithful to God. But his faith does not relieve his suffering. It offers no answers. It offers no reprieve. C.S. Lewis, in A Grief Observed, who, followed, who following the death of his wife, wrestled with his faith in God, says this. Talk to me about the truth of religion, and I'll listen gladly. Talk to me about the duty of religion, and I'll listen submissively. But don't come talking to me about the consolation of religion, or I shall suspect you don't understand. You see, C.S. Lewis and Job and many of us know that there are times when we cannot know why. We cannot know the answers. And in fact, when people give us sympathetic yet unsatisfactory answers to our pain and suffering, we can find it really irritating and patronizing and, and unhelpful. And so faith in God is learning to trust in God that even through the darkest times, we can know that he is in control, he is sovereign. And that is exactly what we observe through the rest of the book of Job. As Job's three friends come to sit with him through his suffering and his misery, they try to offer answers and explanations based on what they understand, who they understand God to be. They argue that Job's suffering must be a result of God's judgment upon Job in his sin. But through the next 40 chapters of Job, there is no evidence that his suffering is a result of his rebellion against God and God's judgment upon him. Job always seems like the innocent, blameless party. There is no clear answer to his suffering. And so we see in Job's conversation that he has with God and with these three well-meaning friends that he quickly gets to the point where he just can't take it anymore. And his conversation changes uh, from the calm acceptance of chapters one and two, where he declares, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away, the name of the Lord be praised, to a distressed, angry lament in the next 40 chapters. I wonder if we can relate to that. The first difficult situation we're dealing with is just about manageable. We can just about cope with the pain. We can rationalize or theologize our way through it. 
But then on top of what you're dealing with, your friend is diagnosed with cancer, or your child fails a really important exam, or you start to struggle yourself with depression or anxiety, or your job is on the line, or somebody close to you's job is on the line. And then there's all the evil on the, in the world as well when you watch the news and you just can't bear it. And you wonder, what is going on? That is no time for pious words of praise or words of worship. And you shout out to God, I cannot take it anymore. And you sit on the floor and you cry out, God, just do something. Or you weep with the psalmist, how long? God, how long? And that is exactly what Job's response to his suffering is. He doesn't just calmly accept his suffering like, you know, this is all in a day's work. But he complains and he gets angry and he tells his friends that their answers are downright unhelpful and wrong. And he tells them what he wants to say to God if God was to walk in the room now. And he laments his horrendous loss and suffering and all the injustice and all the pain uh, that he is experiencing in the world around him. Just look at Job 30 as an example. He says, I cry out to you, God, but you do not answer me. I stand up, but you merely look at me. You turn on me ruthlessly. With the might of your hand, you attack me. You snatch me up and drive me before the wind. You toss me about in the storm. And then he goes on to say, Have I not wept for those in trouble? Has not my soul grieved for the poor? Yet when I hoped for good, evil came. When I looked for light, then came darkness. The churning inside me never stops. Days of suffering confront me. He says it as it is, doesn't he? He does not hold back. In Job's pain, he never, though, questions the existence of God. He doesn't question the activity of God or the power that God has to transform his situation. It's what he knows of God, the relationship that he has with God, that gives him the freedom to say these things to God, to lament, to frankly pour out his pain and his grief to God. And lament is such an important part of the Bible. Jeremiah spends hours lamenting. There are more psalms in the Bible of lament than there are of praise and thanksgiving and joy. There's a whole book, Lamentations, devoted to lamenting. And it's as though in God's word, we're given the permission and the words to express the pain of this world. Lament is an expected part of our relationship with God as we pour out our pain and our grief and our suffering to him. And I know that in times of my life uh, where I've experienced pain and suffering, I found myself lamenting. I haven't necessarily gone, oh, I'm going to have a little lament now, but I have found myself having a right go at God. I've told God what I think about him and I've pleaded to him for change. And I've bemoaned or questioned mine or the circumstances of those I see struggling. And surprisingly, I look back at those times and I can see how they've led to moments where my faith has been taken to a new place. As I've learned that God can take it, as I've learned more about who he is and his love for me, that I can tell him how I do feel that he doesn't just want the good moments, the good moments of praise and joy and awe and thanksgiving, but he wants the dross, he wants the pain. And I've sometimes, not always, been humbled enough to learn to wait for God in those times of pain and suffering 
and see his transforming power. This week, I'm sure you've watched the unfolding disaster in Texas as hundreds of thousands of people have had their homes destroyed as a result of uh, the, the hurricane and the storms. And one man, a pastor of a local church, went back to his flooded home uh, to retrieve some toys for his children. Uh, and, to able to, uh, uh, and he wanted to see what happened to his piano uh, that his son particularly loved. And I'm hoping we'll be able to watch a little video uh, clip that's gone viral on the internet. You might have seen it already, of what happens when he goes into his flooded home. Hurricane Harvey oh. can't stop the music. Arik Harding returned to his flooded home in Houston. Amidst the wreckage, he could not resist trying out his piano. Okay, thank you, Alistair. I just found that a really amazing little clip that here is a man sat in the wreckage of his home, in the wreckage of a hurricane. And there in the middle of it is some beauty. And actually, the pastor said this, I really think that God is going to do something completely new here. I'm excited to see the new beauty in the suffering. I'm excited to see the new beauty in the suffering. Hope in the suffering. Light in the darkness. Beauty from ashes. And in those moments of lament, as we bring it all to God, as we tell him we need him, we inadvertently acknowledge that we cannot sort out this part of our lives or this situation or that, that we need him, that ultimately we know that he is sovereign, that he has the power, that he is in control. And then sometimes, like Pastor Eric Harding had, sometimes in the midst of pain, when we've chucked all our feelings, all our emotions, all our suffering onto God, something changes and the clouds just begin to part. And just for a while, we can lift our eyes up from our own calamity and see that God is still God. And we can wonder and we can praise the God who is the creator and the sustainer of all. And so it's in the midst of his torment and protest that Job allows God to be God and finds freedom. Job allows God to be God and finds freedom. And he declares this, I know that you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. And by the end of Job chapter 42, we find that God uh, did bring an end to Job's suffering. He is vindicated in front of his whole family and he discovers peace and wholeness again. Job stayed faithful through his suffering and God won the victory and God was glorified. Let's just look at this diagram again for a moment. Through the whole biblical narrative, we find that God is utterly sovereign. We find that God is utterly good, but we also find the utter evilness of evil. But on the cross of Jesus, these three things, these three truths converge. We see the power 
of human evil bringing Jesus to the cross. We see God's sovereignty in that moment, using the cross for his divine purposes to redeem humanity. And we see the utter goodness of God as he pours out his mercy and his grace in self-giving love as Jesus bore the weight of the sin and suffering and pain of the world upon himself so that we might know the goodness of God through his forgiveness and mercy and grace. In Jesus, through the cross of Jesus, God has acted decisively and ultimately to deal with the evil and suffering of this world. He shows in a once and for all way that he is in control, that he is sovereign, that he is good, that he does love us, that he does have the victory. In the words of Krish Kandia, we worship a God who, in Jesus, acted decisively to deal with suffering and a God skillful, reliable, and wise enough to be trusted in the darkest of times.